The U.S. Supreme Court just went on a tear. It abolished Roe v. Wade. It supported the Second Amendment again. It reminded us that in America, citizens have a right to publicly declare our faith. And it limited unelected bureaucrats' ability to make policy with the West Virginia versus EPA ruling. The death of Roe seems to have drawn the most passionate of responses. The decision has further rattled the cage of a segment of the population that is already ticked off at everything. Roe's death is the result of decades of tenacious work by pro-life warriors. That work began the moment that atrocious 1973 court ruling became law. For many pro-lifers, abortion was the issue. Like Marjorie Dannenfelser. Dannenfelser was featured in a New York Magazine article titled, The Woman Who Killed Roe. She used her clout to make Donald Trump promise to nominate pro-life judges if she helped get him elected. Dannenfelser, by the account in this story, had a one-track mind, destroy Roe v. Wade. She stayed on track through many of life's twists and turns and setbacks, and it paid off. So, do these Supreme Court decisions suggest the tide is finally turning in favor of Americanism? I'm Paul Dragu, and in this episode of Freedom is the Cure, we're discussing how these rulings will change America and what we can all learn when it comes to getting involved in the intense battle for liberty. But before we go, please remember to subscribe to this channel and like and share this video. It'll really help us get the word out. So my guest today is Robert Owens, a John Birch Society field coordinator. He's the host of Constitution Corner and someone who has spent 20 years as a trial lawyer. Robert, thank you so much for joining me, man. Oh, thanks for having me on. All right. So let's start out with an easy question. Robert, are these rulings, are these some sort of indication that the tide is t turning toward Americanism? Yeah, I'll tell you, Paul, I, I can remember reading uh, these horrific cases uh, about, uh, uh, you know, really removing God from schools, from uh, from political life uh, of Roe v. Wade and, and the Casey decision in, in 1993 that followed on. And, and as a law student going through and reading those cases, I thought, this is nuts. These this is not actual law. This is just made up nonsense as I was reading it. But uh, I'll tell you these uh, this last month of, of reading these, um, you know, some cases, sometimes multi hundred uh, page uh, uh, cases uh, that are or opinions that are being relieved. It has been a whole sea change in viewpoint where uh, uh, concepts of just basic you know, fairness and reasonableness and a plain understanding of the Constitution is reinstilled into law. And man, that is a breath of fresh air, Paul, no doubt about it. You you would have liked to see more of that perhaps when you were practicing, huh? That, that well, kind of I'll tell you environment. What. It's uh, it, it's not a, a pretty environment uh, at all. Um, and, and really, uh, over these last several decades of sort of liberal justices, you know, what was once sort of a sea of freedom with just occasional p 
pieces here and there of things you couldn't do has really reversed into this idea of it's a sea of government regulations and there's just little pieces of liberty flotsam that you can hang on to here and there to protect your rights. And we're seeing a major reversal uh, in, in these cases back in the right direction. And, uh, and, and that's terrific to see. Now, it's not all good news. And, and, and there's some aspects of these cases that are a little bit, you know, troubling and, and aren't quite as expansive as we'd like. But on the whole, man, what a huge step in the right direction. So let's start with the Dobbs case. That's obviously gotten the most attention, and for good reason. It saves human lives, so we can understand that. Where do you see the abo- abortion battle going next? Obviously, we see that the states, you know, are already making their own laws, as I, you know, some argued should have been the case in the first place. Um, but I mean, that, there's also talk of like abortion clinics at national parks, um, uh, and then some states want to make it illegal. Uh, I take it now we're heading in a new uh, new realm of the abortion battle. Uh, what does this practically mean for uh, for for individuals and where do you see this battle going for the next apparently 50 years? Yeah, so we're definitely looking at a state-by-state action. And I'll tell you, it's almost going to be like uh, the antebellum South where you had the division of free states and slave states. You know, we're going to have the murdery states and the non-murdery states, I suppose, going forward. But there's going to be, you know, a need for a new abolition movement to, to build up, to start bringing the moral weight of what this is, because we're talking about the murder of innocent life. No, no question about it. That's exactly what we're dealing with. So, but we've got to find a way on a state by state basis with all the states that are going to be looking at, uh, 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 you know, a a pro-murder concept to finally work with them, to bring them along in that basis. And I think that's a good thing because we need to get people to realize what abortion is and understand it for, for what it it was designed to do, which was really used by eugenicists like Margaret Sanger uh, to, to be involved in depopulation efforts. Mm-hmm. You know, and she was overtly racist. I mean, her thought was to start with, uh, you know, minority communities for depopulation. Uh, but really, we're all, you know, if you're not a, a billionaire currently sipping uh, brandy on a super yacht, yeah, you are in line for depopulation yeah. uh, as well. So, you know, that these, this is what's at stake here. No question about it. And and this is a key case in in, in the right direction. Um, Now, I don't know about national parks, but I'll tell you what, Indian reservations, that type of thing. I could see that being a, you know, potential area where states that otherwise ban abortion might have that come into play. Well, it's so crazy. I mean, can you imagine pulling up into Yellowstone <laughs> and here you have like roaming bison and then there's a sign for, for Planned Parenthood. It's Well, it's, you know, the, the other part is, you know, you go into the Indian casino and there's like the abortion, you know, thing like connected to the casino. I don't know. It would be weird. You know, I, I mean, we're laughing, but it's 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 so uh, it's so crazy. Uh, and and I, I heard a commentary once that we... You know, when when Roe was handed down, the population, I guess the public looked at it as kind of they weren't necessarily as proud of it 
as it seems that they are now. And obviously, I wasn't there, and I don't think you were there when that, when that happened. But it seems like the culture has changed now, where like you know, like they say, it's like people celebrate their abortion. It's 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 so crazy, man. You know, I wanted to ask you something. This is not I don't know. Well, it kind of is in the realm of of of, of the legal realm here and that's uh, adoption because now you're hearing a lot from the left be like well all you right-wingers you better start adopting whatnot Um, anyone who has had any interaction with the adoption process knows that it's a bear of a process is there any talk or is there what are your thoughts on perhaps like we talked about the abortion the pro-life movement is uh what is there any indication that adoption is going to be something that we'll be looking at next, making it easier, making it less burdensome uh, to be to uh, adoption process? Yeah. So, so Paul, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there can be uh, reforms at the state legislative, uh, uh, you know, aspect to to make that uh, easier uh, to to come into play, and that's a, that's a possibility. And and I would say that uh, as conservatives, you know where it makes sense is to say where we're taking the government out of it, you know, the, the private sector needs to step in and, and, and offer some solutions. Mm-hmm. So I think that, um, you know, as conservatives, we should absolutely be involved in uh, local pregnancy centers uh, that help uh, families that are, are involved in pregnancies that maybe are unplanned or where they're just financially not well supported, help them get through those difficult times, help them be able to make decisions as to whether or not uh, being able to keep the child and, and raise that or find an appropriate way to go through the adoption uh, avenue. But we definitely have to be involved in supporting those private sector concepts, because if we don't, then then, then the government's going to be involved, right? I mean, we know that that that's going to be the the construct. So I think we can be involved in that process. We can be involved even in abstinence education programs, because if you ask most kids, hey, who would like to have two or three children by several different, you know, uh, partners, uh, ask them that question. None of them are going to raise their hands on that one, but they need to understand a proper foundation Mm. in marriage and that why abstinence before marriage is so important to a strong family uh, connection going forward. So conservatives also should be very involved in that process as well, because we can't just say, no, 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 we've got to provide other solutions that actually solve the problems. And that's where we need to be for sure. Absolutely. Let's move on to the EPA ruling. I think I have more interest in in this than maybe a lot of folks do. But I was wondering, my my main question was now, correct me, the EPA ruling basically says that uh, the EPA, it limits the EPA's uh, ability to regulate. And in this this case, it was a, a, was it a coal plants in in virginia what impacts does this have and uh for for uh regulatory agencies and the ability to create you know energy to generate energy because we have an energy issue now not because we have an abundance but because of the regulations and the policies out of the white house well, so, so you make a good point there, Paul. So what, what happened in this uh, EPA case was actually a coal plant in West Virginia. And it really stemmed out of the Obama uh, sort of uh, Green New Deal, sort of the early stages of that process going forward to deal with climate change, uh, fraud, nonsense. It was a, a totally incoherent bill. But rather than dealing with it through Congress, Obama pushed that as a regulatory 
basis. And he did so because existing law before this new case dealt with something called the Chevron rule. And basically what this meant was that uh, administrative agencies, as long as they could somehow tangentially connect what they're doing to existing congressional law, then it was considered valid and they could go forward and pass regulations along with it. And this was a massive rise of the regulatory state uh, in the United States, not just the EPA, but across so many different sectors, uh, even in even in Second Amendment uh, applications with the ATF, passing rules and regulations as to what was legal, what was not legal. In fact, about a year ago, uh, there was a, a ruling that we did a Constitution Corner piece on that dealt with the ATF uh, deciding that bump stocks were now illegal, whereas previously they had been legal. And it wasn't done through congressional action. It was done by regulatory measures. And so the, the, the court struck that down and said, no, you can't do that without going back to Congress and getting specific authority. So this EPA case is sort of an outgrowth then of that uh, Second Amendment case. And the key part that even transcends the, uh, the, the sort of climate change agenda, a Green New Deal nonsense, is that it really hampers the growth of the administrative state. It really ratchets down regulatory agencies' ability to just sort of do whatever they wanted to do. And now it sort of goes back to Congress and forces them to actually make explicit rules on certain things and that they have to then tie it. And this has massive implications, Paul. For example, you know, the last time the United States declared war as an actual declaration of war was World War II, right? It was, right. was right after Pearl Harbor. Well, since then, they've just sort of done these sort of delegations of authority to the executive branch to do war. But under this EPA decision, I think a logical extension is that these sort of War Powers Act are not constitutional, that Congress has to specifically declare an act of war in order for us to go down that road. Um, and, and I think that could be a, a tremendous sea change in sort of reigning in the warfare state, uh, even beyond just sort of the corporate welfare state aspect of, of where the regulatory agencies would pick winners and losers. Paul, this case could have massive implications going forward. Well, I I did not see that coming. I mean, when you started talking about the the Congress, uh, uh, the war powers, I, you know, I was just thinking we're talking about energy uh, companies and regulating them and whatnot. But can you explain, like, how, again, you probably kind of did, but how, why, how would this affect uh, Congress, the need for Congress to declare powers that should have been anyway? Well, so what happens is... You know, now I'll, I'll preface this by saying, Paul, I chose university based on not having a math requirement. I have very poor math skills. But if we go to Article 1, Section 1, Sentence 1 of the Constitution, it says all legislative powers are here invested in a Congress. Yeah. Now, if all is vested in Congress, Paul, help me out. How much is left over for the executive branch? <laughs> that would be zero, sir. <laughs> How much is left over for the justices of the judicial branch? <laughs> that would be zero again. <laughs> all right. So what what this what the Supreme Court then has said is look, all legislative powers are vested in Congress. And if legislation is going to be made, it has to be made 
by Congress, yeah. right? So you can't have administrative agencies just sort of making the rules as they go based on sort of blanket ubiquitous sort of claims. Well, this same concept applies in War Powers Act where we have seen where Congress doesn't you know, declare war, doesn't take uh, responsibility for this. They just sort of you know, give some sort of delegated authority to the president yeah to do what they should be doing themselves. And as a result, these this is where this, this ethos or this concept comes into play, where all legislative powers are vested in Congress, where the declaration of war or not war vests in Congress. And this is absolutely essential that this needs to be the case because it's gonna be very hard for the, the sort of war hawks to actually get declarations of war because they know that's unpopular and people don't want it. And it also reigns in the regulatory uh, uh, behemoth that has been destroying uh, America from the inside out, because it's not just um, greenhouse gases that get impacted. It's the vast array. I mean, it's OSHA, it's EPA, it's the ATF, it's the whole alphabet soup uh, going forward, they can't make their own rules. They have to have express authority from Congress. And man, that is huge. Wow. Wow. Like I said, I did not see this coming. I wanted to touch on one of the dissenting judges in this case. Her her reasoning was what we hear, of course, we know, what we know as a tactic of, of you know, fear-mongering us into overlooking uh, the fact that it's unconstitutional, but basically she she said that this this will be terrible for the environment and terrible for the planet and whatnot. Man, what does this say about the priorities of these of these justices? Like she clearly her argument wasn't based on the fact that it's unconstitutional. I it it's it's crazy that this is one of the top justices in the land. Uh, which justice was it, by the way? Is it Sotomayor or? Uh, I forget. I, I think it was, and I can't remember. Okay, and I wasn't the, sure. Anyway, the comment. But it's, you're right. It's totally unhinged and disconnected from any reality of constitutional rights. But but I think that underscores this aspect because people, you know, conservative commentators, I think, really do a disservice. Uh, to the public when they say that these liberals are stupid or that they don't understand or anything else. They understand exactly what they are doing. And you have to understand these aren't good people trying to do the right thing. These are enemy actors specifically trying to destroy the United States as a sovereign nation with a plan of being able to push us into a United Nations led, uh, essentially technocratic oligarchy, uh, as it were. And so that is their goal. And so they see this majority decision as a major roadblock actually implementing that technocratic oligarchy because it is these unelected bureaucrats, this deep state that uh, President Trump used to refer to that is totally destroying the country from the inside. For example, most Americans have no idea the concept of something called the uh, SES, the Senior Executive Service. But you want to talk about the deep state monsters that are totally destroying the country and using these regulatory agencies to do it? The SES is exactly where it starts with because this is where the corporatocracy technocratic uh, uh, types really dig into the federal government at the 
the at the bureaucratic regulatory level mm -hmm. and destroy the nation from the inside. This case, this EPA case, strikes directly at the heart of that. Yeah, boy, that's big news. How how would this work? Uh, you know, would uh, for instance, if Congress or or the president would it could it be used against the president? He loves that that pin. You know, when he's awake and and almost there and aware of who he is, he'll 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 <laughs> he loves that executive uh, action pin. Can that work in this? Can can Congress say, no, no, no. According to this ruling, now we have power to restrict what you can do. Or yeah. is it just well, against the bureaucracies? You know, it's, I, 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 no, it, it applies to that too. I, I, I would say under the, the logic would certainly be a logical extension of that. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, Joe Biden doesn't even know what he's signing anyway, so it's just as well it won't have as much impact. Yeah. Yeah, you know, as it right. comes into play, you know, executive orders are for the regulation of the executive uh, department. They were certainly never meant to be any kind of lawmaking uh, process. So I, I would hope that a logical extension of that is courts will start striking down various aspects of executive orders that certainly transcend their authority of what they're allowed to, to do. I mean, he can certainly decide what type of coffee to have, uh, you know, it, uh, the Navy mess in the White House. I, I might recommend Black Rifle Coffee, <laughs> suggested, although I'm thinking Shotgun Joe's not going for that. <laughs> Let's talk about the Kennedy versus Bremerton School District ruling. Um, what are the practical implications of this? Are, are public school administrators and teachers now, will they be more free to apparently outwardly show their faith? And will this change anything? Yeah, so Paul, really we saw two major religious liberty cases uh, take place this, this term, and both of them hit at different angles, and, and both of them were terrific for the concept that government schools are a hot mess right now, and parents need to understand there's only one solution. Get your kids out of the government schools. We don't pass go. Don't collect 200. Don't even clean out the locker. Just leave the stuff there and get out. Because that's the only answer that can come into play on these government schools. So two rulings took place. One uh, uh, dealt with, um, uh, it was out of the state of Maine and dealt with the fact that um, state legislatures that give parents the opportunity to take whatever money would be assigned to a child and direct it in their way to choose a school of how to educate their children could do so even if it was a religious-based school. So a number of states are looking at something called, a, in Ohio, we call it a backpack bill. Mm -hmm. And what it does is it allows parents to take their kids out of a government school and redirect them to like a, a, a local religious school and use that state money. And even if it's a religious school, they are perfectly within their constitutional rights right. to do that. So that's huge. We can get parents or we can get kids out of those schools. Now, for the few that remain in government schools, and that's sad because they they shouldn't remain there. But for the few that do, it allows Christian teachers to be able to have opportunities to express their faith in a number of different ways. It allows students to find a way to express their faith in a lot of ways. So students can then perhaps carry Bibles into classes and be able to hold, um, you know, Christian or religious based uh, meetings in their schools to have 
teachers and coaches uh, even engage in prayer with them. And it really loosens that whole environment and, and gets rid of what's called the lemon test uh, that previously really restricted and ratcheted down those kinds of things. And so I think it's going to be a re-inculcation of God into this process. And man, that's always a good thing. Wow. Wow. That That's that's really strong if that's you know that's what what we're seeing uh there's been so many battles and what are your thoughts on this um i think this is one of the most common misconceptions people like to talk about the separation of church and state and many assume that the separation of church and states means that uh whenever you walk out of your house because apparently that's the only place that you can uh be who you are you know that's you know whatever if you're follower of Jesus can you can you uh, uh, destroy the misconception that of separation of church and state because apparently many think that that means that you can't bring your faith outside your house yeah Paul so I'll tell you one of my favorite things to do when I'm talking with a, a leftist on this subject and they they're talking about separation of church and state I'll, I'll pull out a pocket constitution I'll say oh you know just as a refresher could you remind me where that's you know, where, where ch- separation of church and state is in the Constitution, and they'll grab the Constitution. Well, sure, and I'll throw it in. I'll say, hey, tell you what, you find it, give you 10 bucks right here. Oh, now they're really digging through it. And then you see their mannerisms change from confidence to sort of concern to frustration. And like, you can hum the uh, the final Jeopardy tune. <laughs> you know, they're really scrambling to find it. And then they'll admit it's not there because it's not there. So where it comes from is there was a, a, a letter um, in response to a, a group of Baptists in, in Danbury, Connecticut, uh, that was written by Thomas Jefferson. And they were concerned that the federal government was going to have a federal uh, denomination. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and because states, even at the time of ratification, several states had official state denominations. Virginia, for example, was Anglican. Uh, I mean, Anglican was a official state religion of the state of Virginia because it said Congress shall not, meaning the federal government shall not. It didn't deal with state government uh, at all from that uh, concept. Um, and so it was understood that that doesn't come into play. Now, what happened was the sort of anti-God left wanted to make sure that there could be no aspect of God mm-hmm. at any way taught in schools, because that is what's needed to destroy uh, a youth and a citizen. Like they understand that. And so they you know, really went after education as a key aspect and one of the first assaults uh, that they made on our civilization. Um, but, you know, as we, we go forward on this process, right, we've just got to understand how we need to fight back so that we can really uh, be effective in restoring liberty and a proper understanding uh, to our constitutional republic. And, and this is just so, so key. Yeah. Okay. In my, uh, I don't want to leave out the New York State and Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin decision, but it was I'm just like, I don't have any legal background, obviously, but I thought it didn't go far enough. It's like, uh, yeah, of course you should be able to, you know, to you, sh- you don't need special reason. If you're a law-abiding citizen, why would you need special reason to conceal carry? But what's crazy is it's like, is it constitutional to require concealed carry at all if you're a law-abiding citizen? 
Well, you know, Paul, you make a great point, right? I mean, think about, uh, uh, you know, the Minutemen that were called to muster on Lexington Green. You, you think they paused for a moment to say, geez, did we get proper permission from the king to carry our firearm outside right, of our yeah. home? Come on, that's nuts. Uh, and, and the bottom line is when we're dealing with a fundamental God-given right, that's not something you go to government for and have to bend the knee and kiss the ring and say, pretty please, may we. Uh, that's not, you know, appropriate. So the good news is on this case is that they said, look, the Second Amendment uh, in, in Heller in 2008 in the D.C. versus Heller case, they said the Second Amendment is a specific individual right to own a firearm. And it really didn't expand beyond that. It just said that. And it also laid out that, hey, conceivably there could be reasonable gun restrictions that exist and i suppose like not having a nuclear weapon in your in your basement might be an example of of that type of uh, uh activity mm -hmm. uh but could be broader they weren't very clear so this case expanded on heller by saying hey that right naturally exists even when you take that firearm outside your home like before you could say you have it in your home now we say you can have it outside your home so it's it's an incremental expansion now the downside to the case as you point out is that it says hey there there certainly is understanding that the rights can say you need to have a license but they point out that that license issuance can't be based on subjective criteria. It can be based only on very limited objective kinds of things like, do you have a felony record? Uh, you know, have you been declared mentally uh, incompetent? Uh, uh, those types of, of aspects. But as long as you clear that basic hurdle, and maybe they can say you have training so you don't shoot yourself in the foot or shoot your neighbor. Mm -hmm. But as long as you clear those hurdles, then the state must issue that license to you. It doesn't have discretion to not issue the license. So that's, I mean, that's a reasonably significant move forward uh, to it, and that's not bad. But the fact that you would need any license at all, in my mind, really, uh, you know, suggests that we do have to come to government for these rights. I don't think that's appropriate. That's why in Ohio, my home state, uh, we worked hard to pass something called constitutional carry, yeah. which means you can get a license if you want one, but you're not required to have a license to be able to carry a concealed firearm for your self-defense. Yeah, yeah, I don't I don't like that either. I've, I've had them before and in my former state, we ended up getting constitutional carry passed just as I was moving out. So now that I'm in Wisconsin, I'm like, come on, Wisconsin, we gotta, we gotta pass that. Like I said, it doesn't make any sense to me. If you're already a law-abiding citizen, you shouldn't need more per, uh, permission to to conceal carry. Uh, so that's whatever. So we, you kind of touched on some of these and whatnot, but can you do a, a little summary of like, how can people, you know, they're listening, how can we use these rulings to perpetuate freedom? What adva uh, advantages uh, of, of freedom do these rulings uh, mean in a, in a practical way of speaking? You had mentioned about school now. If you're maybe a teacher, maybe you could be more outward with your faith, right? You know, can you give me more examples? Yeah, so, so I would say these, um, these recent decisions, I think, should just reinforce the, the really the strategy that the John Birch Society had, which is go to your states and be active in your state legislatures because 
federal government should be limited in what they can do by Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. So these decisions have really made it clear that that's the direction the court's going in original interpretation, originalist interpretation of the Constitution. So what that means is that we need to be especially active in state legislatures, you know, finding ways to make it as easy as possible for parents to get their kids out of government schools. Um, because the only way we're going to get true reform to government schools is if, you know, the teacher and staff show up on day one and there's like no students left in the classroom because they've all gone somewhere else. That's what we need to accomplish. We need to really work in state legislatures to ratchet down uh, on the life issue because the bottom line is life starts at conception. Every biologist on the planet will tell you that that is the start of life and we need to protect innocent life. So, you know, there's a number of states where abortion is illegal to one degree or another, but we need to really ratchet that down because, for example, you know, the, the sort of, you know, abortion in an abortion clinic, that really doesn't happen nearly as much as uh, was the case previously. More than half of abortions now are actually chemical abortions uh, that take place. So we need to find ways to deal with that at the state level as, as well. So these are the areas where I think this should hopefully empower citizens to realize that it is important that we now really need to feed off of the work that the Supreme Court has laid down to be active. And the state legislatures, I think, are the areas where we can get the most bang for the buck. Work on nullification bills, work on pro-life bills, uh, work on, for example, nullifying all federal firearms uh, laws. These are tremendous ways that we can go about using the work that we've seen in this last uh, um, Supreme Court session to further the cause of, of liberty and freedom uh, going forward. I would think that one of the dangers with this is that maybe someone's sitting and they're watching and it's like, well, I don't need to get involved. It looks like the Supreme Court is doing is doing the job for us. I know. Uh, can you can you destroy that quickly? You kind of already touched on it. it's like now we have a little more ammo. Does it seem like we have a little more fuel uh, because the legislators, the state seems to have been more empowered? Isn't now even more reason for people to get involved? And then give me your best JBS get involved pitch and we'll wrap it up. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure, Paul. No, I, I think you, you hit the nail right on the head. I can't tell you how many times I've been in front of uh, state legislators on conservative issues and they were so-called conservatives and they would say, well, I'm a fiscal conservative and if we pass that law, well, by golly, the ACLU would sue us and then the state would be spending a bunch of money to defend it and we'd surely lose. And therefore, as a fiscal conservative, I'm not going to be behind that pro-life bill or pro-gun bill or whatever because we'll just get sued and it'll cost the state a bunch of money. Well, that can that block can finally be torn down now. <laughs> we can actually make progress behind it because we're not going to be dealing with that. And we can finally say, hey, have some backbone. Let's take on these ACLU lawyers because now they're looking at a, you know, a five conservative block and they're going to lose at the end of the day. So in many cases, the ACLU will actually not file these cases because if they do, they could end up in the Supreme Court with a bad decision. 
right? And they realize that now. So we've got to be on the attack. We've got to be on the attack now. Mm -hmm. So the John Birch Society, if you're not already a member or if you are a member, but you haven't been super active, understand this. The John Birch Society will teach you how to create relationships with your state reps and state uh, senators. We will teach you how to understand where their soft points are and how can you approach them to start making a difference in what their voting record is. We'll be able to teach you how to go about testifying effectively at the state house and really making a difference, pushing this legislative agenda. And we will help you on the right focus areas that will give you the most bang for the buck right off the get go, because our nation is in true jeopardy right now, and we need patriots to rise up and hit the, the key points that are going to best defend our liberty as we continue the counteroffensive to restore in full our nation's heritage of liberty. Robert, well said, and thank you so much for, for everything you do, and thank you for all your work out there in the field. I'm, I'm, uh, I don't think there's anything better, any better organization than the John Birch Society. I obviously wouldn't be here if I thought otherwise. So thank you for, for everything you do. My pleasure, Paul. Well, the tide is turning for sure. And to learn more about what these cases mean for liberty, make sure to check out Robert's Constitution Corner series. Thomas Jefferson, one of our most brilliant founding fathers, is credited with saying, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. To preserve freedom in this country, we need all hands on deck. And if you're ready to get involved in the battle of our lifetime and you don't know where to start, and for some reason you're not a JBS member, please visit jbs.org and learn more about who we are and what we do. We have 63 years in the trenches of activism. We have a grassroots organization in place from state to state. We have a mountain of resources, including our robust news magazine, The New American. And we know how to make a difference. So connect with the local coordinator to help you get started. Link is in the description below. And always remember that whatever the societal ailment, freedom is the cure.